difficulties, there's opposition, there's people taunting them, and then they're dealing with their own sinfulness and their sinful natures and how it's at work, not only with their opposition, with their enemies, with those that are outside them, but those who are within their own people. They're dealing with all sorts of things, and you've got to wonder as you get to Nehemiah 5 and we hear the the great outcry that's going on, uh, is there ever an end to the things that can go wrong? And maybe you've had that question in your own life, like, on top of everything, this? Is, is there no end to the problems that we're going to face? And what's good about this is that it's useful for God's people to see how God has kept and preserved and sustained His people through opposition, through troubles, through trials, through sufferings for ages. And He can do this and be faithful to this. It's useful for us to see how we can walk in the fear of the Lord in the midst of wave after wave of opposition and trials and suffering and sins without and sins within and fear and all that brings the, the world brings in front of us and in our lives, that we can walk in the fear of the Lord. Now, opposition was without. We've read a lot about that. Opposition was within, not only with fears, Those things have been constantly threatening, but the problems continue in Nehemiah 5. There arose, verse 1, a great outcry of the people and of their wives against the Jewish brothers. Notice that this isn't a problem that's with the people rebuilding, trying to be faithful and with their opposition outside. This isn't a problem between the Jews, who are God's people, who have the law, and their enemies, who don't despise the Lord and don't care for His word or His law and want to fight against them. This is a problem inside the promised land, within the Jews. It's between Jews and Jews. And here's their great outcry, verse 2. There are those who said, with our sons and daughters, we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. So he gives us at this great outcry, I think three groups. Verse two, these are the the people that are giving part of the great outcry. They are laborers who are depending upon their wages from their work in order to live. And it appears that they are not able to do that. You know that people from all sorts of different places and backgrounds are are there rebuilding the wall, trying to make it a place where people would look at this city and say, this is the city of the great king. Hopefully they're working for the sake of God's name, not just in their own camp, but among the nations. And here they are laboring, and because they're laboring at this wall, they're, they're having to put off other work from which they would have been paid and been able to provide for themselves and for their families. So now they're not receiving any pay because They're rebuilding the wall, and you can't eat walls, so that doesn't really help them that much. They can't be sustained this way, so there's a great outcry. In verse 3, I think you have another group. These are landowners. They could use their land as security uh, against loans to get them through tough times, and it seems like that's what they're doing. But likely, they're nearing the end of where that is actually possible for them anymore. They're, They're reaching the end of their rope that they're at the place where now they don't have anything else in order to repay their loans. They're unable to repay them. And you notice that there's this add-in here. Again, like, will the problems ever stop? There's famine, they say, in the land. 
Now, whether that's a, a weather pattern or it's because there's a shortage of actual workers for the fields, for the land, and, and because of that, they're not able to produce what they could normally produce, we don't know. We don't get any details. All we know is that on top of all this great outcry, there's also a famine in the land, and the harvest isn't going to bring in what's necessary for them to pay their debts. So even though they might have a little more than the, than the laborers, they're struggling. They're at the end of what they can do. In verse 4, there's more, another group, landowners who are falling into debt because they had to borrow money to pay their taxes to the Persians, and they're out of money. And they're falling into more and more debt, trying to pay off what they owe. Now, this would have been a substantial amount. As you know, those who are in charge like to make sure that they get their taxes paid to them. In Ezra chapter 4, you remember when they wrote a letter to Artaxerxes, one of the things that they said, him, said to him when they were trying to oppose the rebuilding of the wall was that this is going to hit you in your pocketbooks, in your pocketbook, right? They're not going to pay tribute if they rebuild this, and they're going to think that they don't need you anymore. So you don't want that, do you? Because, in other words, the, the appeal to these taxes and this tribute that they could have paid that's going to hurt the royal revenue is to say it's substantial. It's not a minor thing to the king. So we're going to make sure that he knows that if they rebuild this, this might happen. So this is, these taxes that could have been put, placed on them could have been substantial. In either case, verse 4, these are people that, that can't pay. There's a shortage. And it's all going to be lost. All their land, all the things that are loaned, all going to be lost if something doesn't happen. Now, these three groups might just be representative of, of the total problems. And these are kind of three categories for more. It could be that these are the three groups. This is exactly what's going on. But whatever the case is, calamity is approaching. The, the structure is crumbling, not the wall. Their sustenance as the people of God actually being able to survive, it's, it's crumbling around them. So these three groups are moving to, I think, all of them moving to what verse 5 describes, which I think describes and summarizes the, the position of them all. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our, our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we're forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it's not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and, in our, and have our vineyards. They put before Nehemiah, we've stretched as far as we can go. We, we've done all that we can do to keep building and to pay off our debts or to make sure we have food for the day. We've done everything we can do. And, and even we're being forced into selling our, our children to this debt slavery in order to pay off our debts. That would have been a, a temporary arrangement where their children would work and, and part of their work would go to pay off their debts. Now, that was permitted by the law and was often a way that they could work to pay off some debts that they had. But there were limits placed on it by the law, of course. And yet, even with those limits, with mortgaged land, with creditors already receiving the produce from the fields, it's leaving the people feeling completely powerless. What does it say in verse 5? It's not in our power to even help they can't do anything about it. They're being oppressed. They're being forced into something they, they don't want to be forced into, and then they can't get, their, can't get out of it. There are hints here that there's mistreatment. Remember that this is not Sambalit again. It's not Tobiah and his company. They're not doing this. This is between Jews and Jews. 
They're referring to their brothers, flesh, their own flesh. And there's hints of mistreatment. You notice that in verse 5, daughters was mentioned twice. The second one is, is a reference. We think like, why do you say it again? Because there's, there's probably an overtone of, of some mistreatment, some sexual overtones here. And so it's not good. There are hints that the, the creditors aren't just getting what's their due, but they're, they're being oppressive. And this isn't, again, the treatment from Jews to outsiders or outsiders to Jews. This is between Jews. And so you have debt that's crushing, poverty that's leaving them powerless, famine that we have nothing about other than its presence, debt slavery. I mean, any one of those issues is substantial. Now they're, they're all going on at the same time. I mean, it is a, a testimony to the hand of God that they've been able to rebuild with all this going on at all. And this has been ongoing, and they've been building, and they've just been, man, just getting by. That they've been able to rebuild all is the work of God's hand, but now they're being crushed. They're pushed to the brink. They're in great trouble, and so there's a, verse 1, great outcry. And it reaches the ears of their leader, Nehemiah. This is a man who's identified with them fully, who left his comfortable, secure position in Persia, in the court of the king, in order to come to this place and to work among the people to rebuild the walls for the sake of God's name. And he's identified with them, prayed for them, spent months fasting and praying for this very work to happen, and then when he gets there, after trouble and trial and opposition, he keeps praying for them, working with them, leading them. He's all in with them. And so when he hears a great outcry, it produces something in him. He's not indifferent. Listen to verse 6. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Now think about what Nehemiah has faced up to this point. In chapter 1, he hears of the condition of the, the promised land and of the walls, that they're crumbling, that they lie in ruins, and the people are, are helpless or not doing anything about it. He mourns. He's sad, but he doesn't get angry, it doesn't say. He faces opposition. These guys around him are being jerks. I mean, they're taunting them to their faces and saying, what are you going to do about this? I got a fox climbs up in your wall and it's going to crumble. That's how good a job you guys are doing. And he doesn't get angry. At least not what the text, text doesn't hint that he does. He's never described himself through all the trials and opposition so far as angry. But here he does. Here he says he gets very angry when he hears their great outcry. Now, when you think about anger, my guess is that we often have some sort of caricature about what that's like. Like this guy from Inside Out who's known as anger, right? He's like constantly ready to just burst into flame and just go berserk everywhere. When we think about anger, that may be one of the images, or maybe this one of, of the Incredible Hulk, where it's like just you get angry and you just want to smash stuff. When you think of Great anger and being very angry. These are some of the images that come up, that, that anger can be like that, a little bit touchy, out of control, wants to destroy, crush, smash things, and it's especially destructive. It's destructive for sinners, of which we are included. There is no one who doesn't sin. We are sinners. And yet, anger 
when done right, is a really good response. It's a response that says of something that's happening, that's wrong, that's off, that's not right, and it works to protect. And one author says that, I think I have this up there, that yet anger does, done right is a great good. It says that's wrong and it acts to protect the innocent and the helpless. It's one of those things that can move us and energize us to address the real wrongs in the world. And I think that's what it does for Nehemiah. He sees the situation and he doesn't like it because he cares about this people and that this is not something that should be named among the people of God. And he gets very angry. And he's probably angry just because of the suffering that's already given to them. And so he's very angry and it leads him to act, to do something, to address the wrong. And so here's what he does in verse 7. I took counsel with myself. Nehemiah doesn't fly off the handle and turn green. His head doesn't burst into flame. He takes counsel with himself. So he, he takes some time in the middle of his very great anger to reflect, to, to stop and to pause and to think through things. In other words, I think that he handles his anger wisely. Perhaps he has a really good realization of this hulk that's inside him called his sinful nature that could come out at any minute. So he doesn't, he doesn't just go right to action, he pauses and he takes counsel with himself. Now that sounds a little bit strange, doesn't it? <laughs> Even that he would describe this, like, hey guys, like I took a minute and I went and talked to myself. But I think this is an extremely helpful thing to do. Extremely helpful if you're going to walk in faithfulness to God, to take counsel with yourself. One pastor says this, that the main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. And then you must go on and remind yourself of God, who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. Did you catch that he said the main art? The main art is to know how to handle yourself. So believer, do you know how to do this? Do you know how to address yourself, take yourself in hand, preach yourself, question yourself? Because we do need to ask ourselves some questions because we are likely to fly off the handle when we get very angry and to be destructive to ourselves and to others. We need to know how to take ourselves in hand. We need to stop and address ourselves, preach to ourselves, question ourselves and our motives and what's going on internally and think through some of our reactions and responses. We need to know how to remind ourselves of what God has called us to, who he has made us to be, what he has done, what he has pledged himself to do, reminding ourselves of the promises of God in order that we might proceed in a way that would bring him honor and would be wise. I think that's what Nehemiah is doing. When he says that he's taking counsel with himself, I think he's doing something along the lines of, of questioning himself, thinking through this, thinking about how to address this, reminding himself, yeah, what is going on? God, no, God has purpose to do this work in us. So the, the answer is going to lie with God. And he reminds himself of who God is, and then he proceeds. He proceeds wisely. Think, verse 7 says, and I brought charges against the nobles and officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest, each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them. 
And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. Nehemiah just puts in front of them the absurdity of this situation. Given their circumstances, as those who had just been exiled, sold to other nations, under them as their servants and slaves, serving as they desire, that they would then come back to the promised land, redeemed by God, sent out from exile back into the promised land by the hand of God, and would get into that place and then enslave one another seems absurd. And they have a past here that they should want to avoid. And yet, currently in their situation, there are oppressors in their midst. And they have oppressive actions against one another. And Nehemiah, he includes himself as one who has worked to help buy back those who had been sold into slavery to the nations, those who had been lost in exile and, and been stripped of their, their property and their rights. And he has been one who has tried to work to buy them back all along the way to work to see it be foiled by oppressive actions among their camp. They've been forced into slavery by the nations, and that was bad enough. And now, they're adding on to it. The exile itself required a lot of undoing. Now, complicate that, compound that, even sabotage that with the work of their own people. Of course, this buying and selling of, of one another would have been against the law. We read in Leviticus chapter 25 few verses at one place that Moses' law, the law of Moses, speaks into this issue. He says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve you until the, fear, until the year of the Jubilee. And then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants." whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves, and you shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Clear instructions for the people of God, rooted in living in a way that would bring honor and glory to God's name, in the fear of the Lord. Now, Nehemiah, when he responds to this great outcry, doesn't go right to the law. He doesn't pull up text and verse and say, here's what you're doing wrong. He appeals to them in a little bit more broad sense. He appeals to them as family with brothers. Do you notice all the language like that? Flesh and flesh. Brothers, our brothers, your brothers. He says it two times in verses 7 and 8. And instead of blessing one another as part of the family of God, they're burdening one another with debt and slavery and oppression. They're not relating to one another as family, as a brotherhood, but as business partners at best, or treating one another as goods at worst. And while our context today is vastly different, there's an underlying temptation that is very much alive and active today. There is a tendency in all of us with sinful hearts to see others as a good to be consumed rather than as a relationship to be considered. 
And rather than treating one another as family with closeness and warmth and intimacy and loyalty and love, we can treat each other transactionally. You give, I give, we each take some, we go back and forth a little bit at a time, and we just move back and forth. Or we can treat another, one another as like kind of activity-based relationships. So we're involved as long as this activity is involved, and if not, then we're not involved. It's very business-like. And we can become consumers, looking for others as a means to an end. That might be profit, that we actually financially gain, as some of the impressors are doing here. It might be pleasure, but we start to look to others as if we're a consumer, that they might be consumed and meet our needs and fulfill our wants. This is pretty easy to spot in our lives because those kind of relationships end when needs aren't met or wants aren't fulfilled. Once that stops, when you stop profiting in a certain way, you don't remain in the relationship. That's a telltale sign that we're looking at one another wrongly. Or maybe it's not as bad as all that. Maybe our relationships with one another aren't oppressive and sinful in that direction, but they're just cold and sterile. And rather than being marked with warmth and depth, they're marked with being just very cold and somewhat distant. We might see one another as a doctor describes. There's a doctor who is a, a trauma and critical care surgeon in a busy hospital in Boston, and she's a believer, and she went on to say that, that despite my pledge to the contrary, I learned to prioritize efficiency over tenderness and hard, cold data over the content of people's hearts. Can we be like that in relationship? Prioritize efficiency over tenderness and being hard and cold over the, the content of people's hearts? Oh, she wasn't out for bad. She's a doctor trying to tend to patients. She's just in a hurry because she's got a lot of patients to deal with. That's not necessarily evil and sinful. She's not trying to harm them, is she? But doesn't that fall short of the warmth and depth of relationship that we're meant to have as brothers, sisters, family? She goes on to say that I wondered how many people with hard questions I'd stranded for the lack of expediency. How many things do we push to the side because it's just not convenient? I wondered how many concerns I'd dismissed, how many souls I'd left wounded too busy to pause, and with a cool sense of duty, marched on to the next patient. Those are maybe some good questions to ask about our relationships with one another. How many people are we pushing to the side? Because it's not convenient. How many concerns are we dismissing? Because we've got to get on to the next thing. How many souls are we, are we not tending to because... We've got a lot of souls to talk to. Scripture calls us to something better, something higher. It calls us to the blessing and the goodness of loving our neighbor as we love ourselves. Jesus summarized the Old Testament, the law in the Old Testament, by saying, love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's what his people are called to. And in the New Testament, you go on to read about how we can do that. And it gives all these commands for the people of God, for believers, for those who dwell within churches and dwell with one another. It gives all these commands that we call the one another commands. 
love one another, encourage one another, exhort one another, bear with one another, pray for one another. I mean, we could go on. There's all sorts of one another commands in the scripture. That's what God's people are called to. Those are a much higher calling, a much greater requirement than some sort of transactional relationship. Bear with one another is hard to be a little bit transactional because when you're actually bearing with somebody, the transaction is a negative on your side. Forgive one another. You're receiving, you're taking, you're absorbing the cost of that sin on yourself in a sense. You're saying this is going to cost somebody and I'm willing to just receive it. Bear with one another, forgive one another, love one another, pray for one another. That's a lot higher calling than some sort of transaction of you give me something that I want and I might reciprocate. It's a call to family and to familial, brotherly relationships. God's people are to have relationships marked with depth and intimacy and warmth and mutual care and concern that looks out for others' needs and concerns before their own. We're not to settle for transactions or even activity-based relationships where we just kind of interact on the activity, where we just have brief conversations and don't go any deeper, where mistreatment in those situations is really easy because it's really easy to start looking at it as a consumer and a good. No, we're meant to treat one another as family, as we would want to be treated, right? Didn't Jesus say that? Treat others the way you would like to be treated? We're meant to dive down deep into loyal brotherhood with one another, with this concern that doesn't just think, what's required of me in this relationship, but how much can I serve? How much can I give? How much can I do for the sake of someone else's good? And church, Jesus led the way in this. Doesn't he do this? Isn't he the best possible brother, friend that we could find? He doesn't come to burden. He specifically says that. Come to me if you're burdened. You can receive my burden, but guess what? My burden's a non-burden. It's actually a blessing. He came to bless. He didn't come to use us. He came to redeem us, to love us, to save us. And through his death, through his resurrection, we can be part of his family. He wants to include us on this depth of relationship that he, it already exists between Father, Son, and Spirit. He wants us in on that. And so he comes to rescue us from our sins, from our depravity, that we might be rescued into this loving, familial relationship that he has known from eternity past. He wants us in on that, so he's willing to sacrifice himself for our good so that that might be a reality. We can be part of God's family. And church, in Christ, in Christ, not only is family with one another possible, although imperfectly, like we're going to sin against one another, we're going to need to bear with one another, we're going to need to forgive one another, but in Christ, all that is possible because he has forgiven us, he has reached for us, he has loved us, and in him we have the well to draw from to do all those one another commands, but not only is it possible, it's already realized. Like he's already achieved it, it's already been won, he's already done it. If we live in what Jesus has accomplished then, then we're going to treat one another as those one another commands say, like family, with depth and love and concern, looking out for others' needs above our own because we don't even care how low we have to get as long as we can serve the good of others because that's what Jesus did for us. We don't look at one another as goods to be consumed or transactionally. We look at one another as loyal brothers and sisters for whom we live to serve alongside and with. Now, obviously, that description 
is not being played out in the promised land. The Jews are falling far short of God's desire for his people, and they know it. Did you notice what happened in verse 8? As Nehemiah confronts them with the situation, it leads to silence. That is amazing. That is evidence of God's hand. There's not many times when I've been confronted. I don't know if there is a time. I don't think I could think of one where I've been confronted with something, whether I've actually done it or not, that I haven't had something to respond with. There's no argument here. They don't respond at all. It, it's as if like the, 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 maybe their hearts are so burdened by what's going on that they, they're trying to think of some words, but they just they have nothing. There's no answer. There's no defense. It's just silent receiving of what Nehemiah has confronted them with. In verse 9, he goes on to say, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? I love that Nehemiah, he, he's willing to confront. He does it with a few first, and then he makes this great assembly. So think about the, the principles that he's carrying out here. But notice what he does here. He doesn't just give this renunciation. Here's all that you're doing wrong. He doesn't just give condemnation. He gives them an invitation. He gives them a question. Shouldn't we walk a different way? Isn't there something better here? He invites them into something. And isn't that the pattern of the Scripture? to call out sin, which the scripture, again, it's not all happy times, and it's not all things are bad in the, in the camp. Like, the scripture is very clear to point out, like, things are bad in your camp, right in your heart. That's where sin dwells, and it's not good there. And yet, it doesn't stop there. The scripture always invites us into the good life that Christ provides for us. It invites us into life with God, God wants us to know Him. He wants us to love Him. It always invites us into the good life. And that's what Nehemiah does here too. And the invitation is to walk in a better way in the fear of the Lord. That is to say, to walk in a way that understands the greatness and the magnitude of God. And at the same time, His goodness, His love, His mercy. It's both awe and intimacy. It's both reverence and closeness. That's the fear of the Lord. You both want to draw near and you submit to Him. You, you draw near, but you're bowing down. That's walking in the fear of the Lord. God's people ought to live this way, and that will, if we live that way, prevent the taunts of the nations, because they'll be saying something different is at work here. How could they obey this one and, and still adore him and do it consistently? It doesn't bring the taunts of the nations. In fact, it, if you walk in the fear of the Lord, the, the scripture is clear that it'll actually, you'll be a light to the nations. You'll be a blessing to the nations, because you're living the way God has designed. Now, Nehemiah reminds them that God's name is on the line. Ought you not to rather walk in the fear of the Lord because the nations are watching. We are meant to be a glory to the name of God. That's what he's appealing to. That's on the line in how we treat one another, he says. And so he wants them to live differently. And in verse 10, he says, Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Again, Nehemiah identifies with them because to some degree, he's involved with whatever's going on here. He, he's involved with, with some of this wrong. Now, there, there's some differences here, right? In, in verse 7 and verse 10, there's this lending and exacting of interest, and there's some commentators that differ on these translations. Some say that exacting interest is, is just lending. It could be exacting interest or just, just a normal loan. 
And some say uh, that there could have been some things that were off here, like some oppression, and some of it could have been fairly normal transactions. So is it exacting or is it lending? Are they being oppressive or are they just handling things in a normal way, but not in a way that would be concerned for the good of their brothers? Either way, Nehemiah condemns it in verse 7. And he includes himself as one who is involved. Now, I think that it makes sense to take it as lending and not exacting interest because Nehemiah is going to go on and say, like, he's excluded from some of the stuff that's getting ready to follow in verse 11. So in verse 11, return to them this very day, their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Again, it could be lending to them, just repay their loan. So one author says this, I think it's helpful with all the getting bogged down in the weeds of this to say, to summarize as an immediate measure to meet the present crisis, Nehemiah demands the cancellation of all debts and interest due, and therefore the return of any property that had to be used in repayment. And the, the percentage he says here, it could be the refund on interest, or it could be the refund on the income derived from the property. But not only do the creditors know what he's demanding, because apparently they're getting ready to agree to it, but they're all in agreement. So they, they understand, whether we not know, like, well, what percentage is it? Is it lending? Or are you exacting interest? Or is it just a normal? They're all on board. Listen to verse 12. They said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they promised. Now he, he gets them all together and he brings the priests in on this, perhaps to, to signal that the outcry is, is being significantly dealt with. It's being sufficiently dealt with. Or perhaps it's because they're all saying we agree, but there's, there's maybe Nehemiah's picking up on a, a hint of reluctance in their midst. And so he wants to bring in everybody and say, all right, we're all on the page here. We, we're going on record as, as saying this is what we want to do. But either way, he leads them kind of to this oath where they're, they're willing to call down a curse if they don't fulfill it. So not only had the problem been dealt with, not only had resolution been found, but, but notice the relief of God's people. They all cry out, Yes, amen. And they don't just stop there. They move on to praise God. Like there's been great work in their midst that they all agree, but then they don't just all agree. They, they, they take it. They funnel that, what God is even doing in their midst to praise to God. He has done something here. And so they praise him. Now, I think that repentance done right will look like that. Repentance done right leads to this unity among brothers leads to praise among God's people for, for what God has done, and that's what happens here. And so as, as 5 moves along, it kind of follows the, the pattern of chapter 4. In, in chapter 4, starting early on, they started taunting. The enemies started taunting them. There was a, a great problem that they had to be dealt with. Nehemiah meets it with biblical wisdom, and then in verse 6 of chapter 4, it says the people had a mind to work. Now they get busy in the face of their taunts and questions of their enemies. And they start following through with the work that they were meant to do. Here, there's a great outcry. Nehemiah handles it with great wisdom. The people agree. And look, they, they follow through with it. They did as they promised. Now, how did they follow through with it? How did this come about? How did it come to this? 
Nehemiah, he didn't quote the law to bring about them following through. And though the law and the old covenant are grounding all of this and how they're to look at one another and treat one another, surely they're grounding all that Nehemiah is doing. He doesn't quote a text and verse. There's no rediscovery of the law like Josiah rediscovers it and like, hey, we better start doing this stuff. There's, no, there's nothing like that. Rather, it came through a call to brotherhood. It came through Nehemiah appealing to them to walk in the fear of the Lord. That's how it comes. He doesn't give, here's the prescription for future dealings with one another, and because we're in this circumstance, you guys need to make sure that in the future, here's how you deal with things. This is the interest. This is not the interest. This is what he doesn't give specifics on any of that and how it works out. He appeals to them as brothers to treat their brothers like their brothers as their own flesh. He says to walk in the fear of the Lord, and things work out. And what he does to finish the episode is to then point to his own example. In other words, I think he's calling them to generosity. He's especially calling the original audience of, of Ezra and Nehemiah, would have been people about a hundred or so years after this is actually going on. And what he wants them to know and see out of all of this is that there needs to be generosity in our midst. To walk in the fear of the Lord, there needs to be generosity. Listen to verse 14 and how Nehemiah shows this with his example. Moreover, from that time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. And even their servants lorded over the people, but I didn't do so because of the fear of the Lord. I also preserved or persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor, because the service was too heavy on my people, on this people. Therefore, remember for my good, O oh my God, all that I have done for this people. Nehemiah closes out the episode by intentionally contrasting his example with what has come before him, with others, with, with those who had, were in their midst, were the nobles and officials that were being oppressive. He contrasts his example, his way of living with them, but also some governors that had come before. Hopefully that wasn't Zerubbabel, but maybe some in between Zerubbabel and now Nehemiah. And he contrasts their actions with his how they were being oppressive, and how he was doing things differently. Now, why was he doing this? Why was he giving this example? I don't think Nehemiah was giving it to boast. I think he was trying to show his original audience, those who would have been under the rule of others, who would have needed one another to be generous and kind in order to survive, in order to be a people that would be a glory to the name of God. I think he's trying to show them that just obeying the letter of the law is great, but we, we can go beyond that. We can be generous, we can be kind, and we can go above these things for the sake of one another, for the glory of God's name. He's showing them a path of generosity that can exist with one another, that's actually needed with one another, especially in oppressive situations, like under Roman rule, or under Persian rule, or Babylonian rule. There's a different way, and he leads it out. Governors in that time, they were given a food allowance from their higher-ups. It was, it was given to them, right? They, 
They didn't have maybe a say in it one way or the other. You're the governor. This is your supply from those who are higher up, from the Persians. And it was substantial. But Nehemiah doesn't use it for himself. He uses it to bless others. Now, the people would have been taxed to not only provide for that governor and all that food, but the governors then could add taxes on. And that seems what Nehemiah is saying. Like some of them have, have added on top of what your normal taxes are. Again, that could have been pretty oppressive. And they would use those taxes then to provide for themselves and their officials. If you've got 150 men that are in your court all the time, you've got to feed them, supply them. That, that's a lot of food. But Nehemiah, what does he do? He doesn't add on taxes and he doesn't provide from this allowance. He shares the allowance and provides from his own pocketbook. Now, the, the equation for this is, is astronomical of what he would have given. Now, he was probably a man of means. Even from the Persians, he probably had some means from them that he was able to provide out of. But the estimate for the amount of meat per day, it was 800 pounds a day given. 800 pounds of meat. I mean, an ox every day, like you can start doing the math. Like 12 years, an ox a day, that's 4,380 oxen. That's over 26,000 thousand sheep, plus wine in abundance. And this is all Nehemiah is saying, I paid for this, to give this out, to bless my people. He doesn't use his means, his rights, his privileges, what is his to serve himself. He uses it to serve other people, to serve those around him. Believers, like we do not have to take up every right, every privilege, every blessing from God and, and serve ourselves with it. Like we are free, gloriously free in Christ because of what he has done, because he laid down his life. We are now free and we're free to lay down our lives. That's the freedom that Christ has bought for us. Yeah, we're free. We're not slaves to, to any, but we're now free to be slaves to all to then serve all. That's what Christ has called us to. That freedom that he gives to us is a freedom that affords us with the truly blessed opportunity to lay down our freedoms, to lay down our rights for the good of other peoples, to serve them. This is a position that none others but believers can have. But the world can't do this. The world is not free to lay down their own life for the good of others. They are slaves to their sin as we once were. But in Christ, we're set free to then become servants for everybody, for the good of all. We can lay down our rights and privileges. We don't have to take everything that has been given to us and use it for us. We can lay it down for the good of others. Now, Nehemiah's cost over these 12 years, as you can imagine, was, was likely pretty great. But so was the blessing that he was able to give to many I mean, the, the blessing that he multiplied out to the, the, the nations through this people is incalculable. There's no way you could put a number on that or a poundage of meat on that of how much he was able to bless the people in his own camp that were then turning around and being a blessing to the nations by living in a way that would bring honor and glory to God. Why does he do it? He gives us two reasons. The first is in verse 15. Right at the very end, it says, because of the fear of God. He does it because he fears God. He lives his life in light of a holy, just, good, merciful God. He fears God, and he lives by faith. 
His trust for God is displayed in his prayers. When he's backed up against the wall, when opposition is facing him, he prays to God because he trusts him. He leads the people and he's out there with them. He's working alongside them. He doesn't even change his clothes. He's working day and night tirelessly alongside them because he trusts in God. He calls for their repentance and confronts them because he trusts in God. And he walks in repentance because he trusts in God. He gives generously from his own pocketbook because he trusts in God. He is a man who fears the Lord in public and in private with the Jews, with the Persians. Nehemiah shows himself as a man who fears God. That is how we were made to walk, in the fear of the Lord. And the second reason he gives is in verse 18, right at the end. Because the service was too heavy on this people. They're burdened, and he cares for them. He has compassion on them, and he doesn't want them to be further burdened by his life. He wants them to be blessed by his life. He looks at them not as a means to to get this job done, He didn't see the people as like, well, this is the only way we're going to build. He sees them as people. He wants their good. He doesn't see them as a good to be consumed, but as people to love and to serve and to work for, sacrifice for, even giving of his own stuff for. He sees them as his own family. And because he sees them that way and loves them and doesn't want them further burdened, he's willing to, to generously give to them, to sacrifice for them. Now, these two go hand in hand, right? The fear of the Lord and looking at one another with compassion Indeed, they sum up what God has called us to in the Christian life, to love God and to love others. He walks in the fear of the Lord, and he doesn't want to further burden the people. He wants to bless them. What frees him up to lead, to build, to pray, to confront, to sacrifice, to give generously? His faith in God. Verse 19 says, he says another prayer. Remember for my good, O God, all that I have done for this people. In other words, he he doesn't see this as a zero-sum game because he trusts in God. He he offers it all up to him and says, remember it. So he's free to lead, to give, to sacrifice because he trusts God. He believes, as Hebrews 11, 6 says, that not only does God exist, but he rewards those who seek him. Church, do you believe this? Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You could give generously. You could even sacrifice your life, Paul says, and it'd still be just like a clanging symbol. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But if you fear the Lord, then you are one who knows that not only does he exist, but he rewards those who trust in him. Nehemiah is looking forward. He's giving generously, sacrificing because of something that's ahead. Remember this, God. He trusts that his giving is not just a loss to himself. He trusts that it's good for the people, a glory to God, but that God can remember it because he exists and he rewards those who trust in him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Do you believe this? And church, one of the things that God has called us to is to not only to act and to give and to sacrifice generously for the good of one another and for the glory of God's name, he's called us to remember how he has already done that for us. And one of the ways we do that is through the Lord's Supper. It's a meal of remembrance, a meal of giving, not our giving. We don't bring something to the table. This is a meal that we receive. God has given generously of his own son, his body broken, his blood poured out so that we might be part of God's family. And so if you're a believer, you're meant to take this meal in remembrance of what he has done, in celebration of what he has done. 
We, we take this meal by faith, knowing that without faith it's impossible to please. But with faith, then the, the body of Christ truly has been broken for us so that we might be made whole. That the blood of Christ truly has been spilt for us so that we might be washed clean and forgiven of our sins. And so in this meal, we invite you, if you're a believer, to come and take it. Remember what Jesus has done and that you are part of the family of God, not because of what you have done, but because of your faith in Christ. If you're not a believer, we would say instead of taking this meal, please take Christ instead. Repent and believe. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. He is the one whom we will give an account one day. We would say, please give your life to him and live in the blessed life of walking in the fear of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer as we prepare to take this meal.